I'm going to talk to you today about your body. So I guess you are aware that you're sitting in a body. And you may just want to stroke your body and say, you know, I, I have a body. And um, I'm hoping that by the end of uh, what I've been saying, uh, you may have adjusted your relationship with your body. And the particular um, angle is going to be the phenomenon of the risen body of Jesus, which we have just commemorated, as the prototype of the future of your body. Now, just to anchor this in um, some stories, I'm going to tell you three stories that are about people who have died and who have been prayed for and brought back to life. I have spent one evening in a morgue praying for the dead body of a friend of mine. If I had succeeded, believe me, you would have known. Uh, so I haven't touched um, somebody that I have prayed for, but I have had quite close shaves with stories like this through people that I have known very well. And the first is a guy called uh, Joseph Kobo who led a network of churches, and um, I knew him as a leader. There was a kind of structure we were in together. Uh, and uh, most of the churches he led are in a part of our country where they speak Tosa, which means the people there speak Tosa. That's Nelson Mandela's language. And up in the hill country in a little town, a revival broke out, uh, mostly based upon prayer, um, the women praying, because many of the men were away in migratory labor. And uh, healings and things began to happen. So he went up there, and as the leader of the whole group of churches, visited this town. And the place was completely packed. They were using the little town hall. And this story, I know because he told it to us, and we were so amazed that we interrogated him about 20 times and said, Joseph, tell us, are you sure this is how it happened? And we'd get him to tell the story again. So I've heard the story many times and many other people have as well. Because of the healings taking place, there was an expectation of healing. The place was full. And about halfway through his sermon, there was a commotion at the back. And two men arrived with a stepladder and a woman's dead body on the stepladder, wanting him to pray for her. And he said that at that point, every bit of faith he had ever had leaked through his toes. He had no expectation whatsoever. What would you do? So the only spare place where there was space to put the body was on the platform behind him. So he said, well, lay the body down on the platform behind me. And it, it turned out later she had given birth to uh, two decomposed fetuses and had died of infection. And they'd walked for a day and a night or something over the mountains to bring her there. So he said he thought he would pray a safe prayer that could go either way. And he prayed, Lord, bless this body. Can, can you see it can go either way? Blessed on its way or... 
And then he attempted to continue his sermon, expecting that nothing would happen. And he noticed at a certain point that nobody was looking at him at all. They were looking past him. And he turned around to find that she was sitting up. She had not given her life to Christ. She didn't know the gospel. And of course, thankfully, she then did give her life to Christ. So I think that's quite a cool story. Another story is um, I went to teach at uh, a town called Livingston where the uh, Victoria Falls are. And there's a vineyard there. And I was doing a two-week teaching thing. Uh, And uh, a year before... A team from Cape Town had gone to Livingston. It was during the real intensity of the renewal that took place in 95, 96. There was a lot of power in our meetings. And while they were there, a local tribal chief got struck by lightning and died. And with the members of of the vineyard in, in Livingston, they went to him and prayed for him. And he came back to life. So, you know, when the guys came back to Cape Town, they told us all their triumphant stories. And, of course, this was the most triumphant story of all. And at the end of my two-week teaching, um, there was a dinner in the one pastor's house. And it was a small area. So I was put into a settee that was made for three people. But there were four of us sitting on it. We were jammed together. And I had always been fascinated in this particular story. So I said, um, is, tell me the story of that tribal chief. Did, did he really come back to life? And do you still know him? And stuff like that. And the guy sitting next to me jabbed me in the ribs. And he'd been listening to me for two weeks. And he said, it's me. <laughs> well, I nearly got raised from the dead right there on the spot. Like, ha! You know, I've, I've touched a living, dead, alive human being. So I would call that quite a close shave with uh, this kind of thing. Of course, the other story that you all know very well is the story of Lazarus of Jerusalem, who died, and kind of almost deliberately Jesus got there late. So he'd been dead for three days, and he was very dead because his body was starting to smell. And he just spoke to Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come out. And uh, what is interesting about that story is when Lazarus came out, Jesus said, untie him. Now, if you know the burial customs of the Jews, you'll understand what Jesus was saying. They used to get long strips of cloth and embalm them with all sorts of uh, things to preserve the body. Um, And then they would wrap the body, twirl it around the body so that it ended up like a kind of cocoon. So they would put the hands like this, and they would wrap and wrap and wrap and wrap all the way around up to here. And then they would have another headpiece they would wrap around down to the neck. And so poor old Lazarus probably came out walking like a duck, you know, sort of, let me out of here kind of a thing. And they would have to unwrap him. Now, you must remember that for what we're going to tell you in a moment. The thing about these stories, and there are many other stories like this in church history, of, and in the Old Testament, of people who died and they were brought back to life, is that they were brought back to life in their existence they had previously had, then continued to age, and then died. And, you know, my, my friend in Zambia will one day die, and um, Lazarus's grave is somewhere 
near Jerusalem and his bones are still in that grave. That is an entirely different phenomenon to what happened to Jesus. And so these are more technically described as resuscitations, miraculous resuscitations. Jesus didn't have a resuscitation. He had a resurrection. And that is much more important for the future of your body. So let me um, fit this into the whole teaching of the kingdom of God, which is important to us in the vineyard. Um, The way Jesus taught about the significance of his ministry was in terms of the coming of God's kingdom. And that fits into the whole biblical story of how God deals with mankind. And it looks basically like like this, that God deals with us through a, a history of redemption that moves from creation in a deliberate process of all God's dealings with mankind through the centuries to a final end where history, as we know it, will be terminated. God will come and judge all mankind And then there will be a new heaven and a new earth called the coming age where the book of Revelation says that the former things have passed away and God has made everything new. And life will be uh, at a new level of existence. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. What is really mysterious and uh, what was unexpected about the ministry of Jesus is that in his Um, coming and speaking words of the kingdom and doing works of the kingdom, announcing the kingdom and then demonstrating it with healings and feeding the the poor miraculously and and, uh, raising the dead and so on. And then in the high points of his life, in his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension, which unleashed the power of Pentecost. That's the little fire on the P there. What occurred is that the future world that God will create after the end somehow miraculously appeared in advance in the coming of Jesus, in his life and ministry, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. And all of these events are what the future is going to look like happening in a kind of first installment or down payment in advance. And of all of those cluster of things that that describe who Jesus is and what he came to do, the supreme moment that reveals the future is the resurrection, particularly the phenomenon of his body. So that's what I want to dwell on this morning. When Peter and John heard from the woman that the grave was empty, they behaved like typical chauvinistic men at that time. They said these women are hysterical. But, and there's a whole story of how come God decided to show women the risen body of Jesus before men, ladies. That's the whole point. Uh, They ran to the tomb, and I stole Chris's Bible, so I'm just going to read to you a particular verse. They ran to the tomb, Uh, John outran Peter, they got there, and he stopped outside the tomb, and then, as normal, Peter walked straight in. And then it says, then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. 
He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. And the word folded in the English is a bit of an unfortunate translation, because the Greek word means twirled up, rolled up by itself. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. Which means that something about the way the linen cloths looked caused him to start believing what the woman had said, that they had seen Jesus. What would he have seen? He would have seen this whole cocoon shape, all still rolled up. That's what the the word means. But because the only thing that held the headpiece from the body piece was the body, and the body had disappeared, the headpiece fell to one side. And if you'd been there the second it happened, you would not have seen Jesus behaving like Lazarus. You know, getting up and saying, somebody unwrap me and get me out of here. (coughs) Wouldn't have seen that. You would have seen something like a balloon just going down. Shh. Because what had been (coughs) inside had literally disappeared. Nothing unraveled. And when they saw that that was what had happened, they started saying, something remarkable occurred here. Then there's the period of 40 days, which is quite a long time, where Jesus repeatedly met with his disciples, risen from the dead. And the Gospels deliberately describe this phenomenon in many different stories. So, for instance, on one occasion, when they were in a room where all the doors, it says in John twice, they had locked all the doors for fear of being arrested. So there was no way he could come in, you know, through the back door. All of a sudden, he was standing in the middle of the room. Now, what would happen to your adrenaline if you'd been to the funeral of a friend two days ago, you're sitting around your dining room table, the house is locked, and this person is suddenly standing right in front of you. I think you'd go, ha, like, more than I did when the guy jabbed me, I think. And they, they thought he was, a, he was a, a spirit. Because, you know, how do you just appear out of nowhere? Then there, those two guys who walked all the way to the village of Emmaus, uh, they, he, he said, well, invite me into dinner. And as he gave thanks, like you guys did this morning over the bread and the wine, they had a deja vu moment. We've seen somebody pray like this over bread and wine. Suddenly they realize Jesus is sitting there. And he's been talking to them for the last few hours, giving them a lengthy Bible study. And then he disappears out of their sight. They rush back to Jerusalem, you know, run the distance, get there, and he's just arrived there as well. And the disciples say, but he's just been here as well. So whatever the nature was of the phenomenon of the risen body of Jesus, uh, it, his body was no longer bound by space or time. Did, did, did he come through the walls? We he just was there and then he wasn't there. However, the text goes to great lengths to tell us that he was not a kind of immaterial, uh, non-physical ghost appearance, that he was very physically, tangibly real. So when Mary saw him, she embraced him and clung to him. And he said, stop clinging to me. Now, if you embrace a ghost, you you kind of go right through it, don't you? 
She actually. Thomas, he said, come and put your finger into the wounds and feel. And more importantly, when they thought he was a ghost, he said, do you have anything to eat? And they said, yes, there's some fish on the table. And he sat down and he ate the fish with them. And then when he disappeared, the fish that had been on the table had gone. You know? Even more so, on the shores of Galilee, where Peter fished all night and caught nothing, and there was a guy on the shore, and he said, throw the net on the other side, and the whole story. Um, they got there, and Jesus had made a fish barbecue, and said, you know, come and enjoy it with us. And ghosts do not make fish barbecues. Ghosts cannot be hugged. Ghosts do not have flesh. And, and he said to them, do not fear, because a spirit does not have flesh and bones like you see that I have. So this is really quite a phenomenon, and this is not science fiction. This is pretty reliable historical documentation over a period of about 40 days of repeated uh, fellowship between the risen Jesus and uh, his disciples. Now, what do we make of this phenomenon? And I'm going to quickly tell you a little story about my theology professor when I was doing theology at university. He was an Australian, and uh, he was the ultimate mad professor. You know, there are movies about mad professors. Well, we had a walking movie every day. And uh, he had this incurable itch for, uh, condition, and he used to scratch continually. And sometimes, like, he'd put his back against the wall and be going up and down. And he'd get his car keys and he'd put them into his ears and then he'd put them into this ear. And he also ha had a habit of continually grinning. Huge grins. And uh, we called him Happy Scratch for that reason. But he was one of these guys who was so brilliant that he's a little bit on the edge. He actually used to walk down the passage and his shoulder would scrape the wall and he'd sort of wander along um, nothing to do with alcohol or anything like that simply he'd been a medical doctor and had to give up his practice because he couldn't socialize with his clients he had a PhD I think in physics and in philosophy and in theology and he used to love to embarrass the people in the physics department because he was reading up all their journals and was probably more aware of their science than they were and he said, look, this is what could have happened with the risen body of Jesus. And I'm not saying this is what happened. It's just that now with post-Einstein and indeterminacy physics, Heisenberg's principle of indeterminacy, we can view such a phenomenon with a window that previous people didn't view. And it really isn't that complicated. You, you did it probably at school. You know that this is a solid table. It's metal. But if you put it in the fire, it'll go up in smoke because it's made of chemicals. And chemicals, in turn, in turn are made of molecules. You knew that, didn't you? Well, I, I knew that. Even before Happy Scratch told me that. And molecules are made up of arrangements of atoms, like HT2O is two hydrogen and, isn't that right? One oxygen. And atoms, and this is where modern science has gone, atoms are made up basically of polarities of magnetism and energy. There's a central section and electrons going around it that are kept together by magnetism. And electrons behave like particles and energy at the same time, and they're indeterminate because depending on how you view them, um, 
they seem to change. And the bottom line is, the whole thing is just energy. And so that's why atomic fusion takes place, where you get a whole lot of atoms, and in an instant sequence, you just unglue their energy. And you can blow up England. So touch your body again and realize, actually, there's nothing there. And what's interesting from us from a point of view of creation is it means that if God were to withdraw the energy that he put into the Big Bang and into every electron and every atom in the universe, there wouldn't even be a smell left over because a smell is made up of chemicals. There would be nothing because the whole thing is energy. So Einstein said matter equals energy. That was his great formula. And so Happy Scratch said, it's conceivable that if you could change all the energy levels in all the uh, electrons, in all the atoms, in all the molecules of a substance, you could put your hand through this metal table or walk through a wall and you would still be fuzzy, fully physical. See? So I... I I'm not saying that's exactly what happened to Jesus. I'm just saying it is more conceivable now for us to think about that than it has been before. So this brings us to the most important point that I want to make this morning. Paul tells us that the phenomenon of the risen body of Jesus is the prototype of a future kind of body that God is going to give to all of his people. And if you are one of his people... It is the future of your body. So he has a verse that tells us, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. The word transform that Paul uses, metamorphoso, means like a, a a worm becomes a butterfly, a metamorphosis. It's the same creature, and yet it becomes a completely different phenomenon with freedoms. You know, worms don't fly, but butterf butterflies do. And so there will be continuity. It will be the same body that we have now, but there will also be discontinuity because it will be a transformed body. And in um, Corinthians, Paul, in fact, spends a whole chapter thinking about this and describing it. And he makes the point that whatever happened to the body of Jesus is going to happen to us because, in fact, the expectation of Scripture... It's, is it drifting? I'm so into my... I'm so excited about my subject, it would have just fallen off. Um, the expectation of Scripture was that when the end comes, God would raise all his people from the dead. That would be the day of judgment. There was never an expectation that one single individual, all on his own, would be raised from the dead in advance. And so because that happened to Jesus, Jesus is God showing us what the future looks like. That's the nature of the resurrection. And so Paul goes into describing the phenomenon of this body. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised in imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. 
It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And all of these points are, first of all, describing the phenomenon of the risen body of Jesus, and therefore, by implication, the future of your body. So let's just go through these contrasts. First one is the bodies we have now and the body Jesus had before he was crucified are perishable. Do you know that the medics tell us that if you're a man, roughly from about the age of 25, you start rotting. Not every molecule in your brain, and ladies have the same thing but at a different date because they mature earlier than we are. So I actually think they start rotting earlier than we do. And not every molecule of your brain is replaced, and so there's a kind of inevitable degeneration from that moment on. And we do everything to stop it, don't we? We first go to the gym and work out, and then we buy pills people tell us are anti-aging, and um, we go and get, you know, all sorts of uh, things done to our faces and so on. Depends if you're a man or a woman, what you do. But it's kind of inevitable, isn't it? But the body of Jesus, raised from the dead, is imperishable because it's broken through into another kind of phenomenon. Sown in dishonor, his crucifixion and so on, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. This is the important phrase. Sown in natural body, that's what we've got now. Raised, and Paul uses the Greek word somanematikos, which really is to break grammar. It's to say physical, spiritual, or spiritual, physical. Somatic is physical, nematikos is spiritual. It is a body that is simultaneously the phenomenon of, a, of, a, of what is spiritual, and at the same time, what is physical. <clears throat> Earthly body, heavenly body, first Adam, the body that we have now all in the corruption they have because of our solidarity with the human race that has fallen. And this body will be the new humanity of which Jesus is the personification and prototype in advance. So, therefore, resurrection and resuscitation are not the same thing because resurrection is a completely different thing. So, what then is is resurrection? It is much more than resuscitation. I also have a theory that because this happened to Jesus, we don't exactly know how old he was, maybe 30 years old, which in terms of the powers of the human body are probably the peak of physical strength that a man gets to, even though he started rotting a bit earlier. Um, But if you look at the great sportsmen, um, often they, you know, after, after 30 If they do play, they get injured so often they have to stop playing. But that's where they've got the maximum experience and so on. I think if if that happened to Jesus at that age, it means Jesus is today 30 years old. And in in a thousand years' time, he will be 30 years old. And if that's the model... It means that, you know, if I die when I'm 95 and I look like an old prune, it doesn't mean I'm going to be brought back like that. But as I was at the peak of life, but greatly improved. (laughs) Now, Chris, you should have seen my body when I was at the peak of life, you know. (laughs) 
I don't know what yours was like, but it, it was quite a phenomenon to behold. So I can't prove that from scripture, but I think it's a very reasonable deduction. <clears throat> that it, we will be brought back the way our bodies were at the peak of life and, and greatly improved. So it means that the future for the Christian is not an escape from bodiliness, but a re-embodiedness. See, this is important because all sorts of <clears throat> New Age philosophies, uh, Hindu religions and so on, have this whole idea that you know, we want to escape from physicality. We're going to kind of go off into some sort of spiritual world where like a drop goes back into the ocean, we become one with the universe and we basically disappear. I don't find that at all attractive. That we just become a drop that disappears back into the universe. Like, you know, that's what nirvana is supposed to be. Um, no, the, the, the Christian hope is completely linked to a new embodiedness based upon Jesus, who is the prototype. And so uh, N.T. Wright, who's quite a well-known writer uh, in this country, has coined the phrase transphysical reality. It is a physical body that transcends the normal limitations of perishability and space and time that um, physical entities normally have. It is the, the supreme revelation of the kingdom of God. This fact that in Jesus the future world has broken into the present. And God is giving us a, a foretaste of a world he's going to make one day. And of all the places we can find that in scripture, it is this risen body of Jesus that is the supreme revelation of it. And this is something that sets the Christian faith apart from everything else. We live in a, a pluralistic world, religiously, and we have to respect all religions. But as Christians, we also need to be bold to say, where is Buddha today? Dead. Where is Krishna today? Dead. Where is Muhammad today? Peace be upon his memory. Dead. And so with all the world religions, <clears throat> all of their leaders... Where is Jesus Christ today? In the control room of the whole universe, in a body 30 years old, risen from the dead. There is no other place in history where it is documented that death has been transcended and somebody has broken through death into another form of existence and verified it for 40 days with meal after meal after meal, on one occasion, 500 people. Well, actually, they only counted the men. Very chauvinistic society, which probably means there were about 1,500 people. This is, this is why we can say, there is no other name given under heaven amongst men by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. Totally unique. And this is not just science fiction for us. We're not reading science fiction here. We are reading something that not only is historically documented, but we experience frequent foretastes of it. The whole teaching of scripture is that whenever the Holy Spirit comes on people in power, and some of the phenomena happen that happen in revivals, 
What is taking place is a down payment of the power that will go through every electron in every molecule of our bodies and transform our bodies. And so I've seen in many meetings people when the power of God is on them. And the bodies we've got now have what I call system overload. They can't take it. So they may look like they're being electrocuted. They may weep uncontrollably. They may laugh. They may fall down and lie down like in a sort of trance for uh, an hour or two. They may bounce up and down. I've seen all of those things happen, happen. those things happening in meetings when the power of God is present. And all that this is telling us is there's a power here that is actually the power that one day is going to transform this body. And the flesh and blood we have now cannot take that power. But we have frequent down payment experiences of it in advance. And so if you've had some of those Holy Spirit experiences or the experience of Pentecost, what will happen when the final day comes is you'll feel the the presence of the Spirit coming on you, and you'll say, this is great, I'm feeling the anointing of the Spirit. But God will just turn up the dial. You know, like from 12 volts to thousands of volts. Zap. You'll be zapped like you've never been zapped before. (laughs) This experience begins for us when we first invite the presence of Jesus into our lives. That's what it means to be born again. Peter says we are born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He comes and he breathes into you this life that is actually in its seed, immortality. And so if there's anybody here this morning and you're not sure that you've got the presence of Jesus deep within you, I mean, who wouldn't want this? You know, who wouldn't want to know you're going to have a body like this one day? Uh, If you have not decided for Jesus, you're crazy, man. (laughs) And why don't you decide this morning to be sure that Jesus has entered your life? And you know, if you're not sure that he has, then he probably hasn't. Because everybody who's invited him in, within a short period of time, there's the witness of the Holy Spirit that you have where you can say, I know that I know that I have the Son of God within me. See? The other thing is, that's why physical healing takes place. Physical healings and these signs, even people being resuscitated, all they're doing is giving us another little foretaste of what's coming. And so God doesn't heal everybody we, we always pray for. These are foretastes. These are not the future itself. But frequently... As we lay hands on the sick and pray for them, something of the future spills over from the future into the present. And people can be healed because we have amongst us the, prison, the presence of the risen Lord. So let me bring this to a close and say, how then should this change your attitude to your body? And how may you respond today? First of all, I think you need to start respecting your body. Dualism means a kind of idea that we are not really physical beings. We are spirits locked in souls living in bodies. That's not how the Bible views it. And you're not going to escape from your body. And so, you know, fingerprints, every fingerprint is unique to every human being. Do you realize that those same fingerprints are going to be in existence for thousands of years to come? You should look next time at your hand and say, hand, we are going to be together for a long, long time. 
So, people who've been physically abused, I believe this is a really powerful healing truth for them. The the terrible thing about physical abuse, whether it, it was just physical or sexual or whatever it was, is that the victims feel unclean. And the perpetrators often don't even have a conscience. And for instance, uh, bulimia, where people, you know, get rid of their food all the time, almost always can be traced back to some kind of abuse, where the person then feels, I am not comfortable with this body, this body is, is, is damaged, this body is unclean, and they want to somehow uh, escape from their bodies. And, you know, we need to hold people who have those problems with the greatest um, dignity and, and respect because this is a terrible fight they, they're going through. Um, and then Paul says that our moral choices are often made because we don't think our bodies are important. He says, don't think that you can say your spirit is married to Jesus and then you can go and do ethically whatever you want to do with your body. And, you know, we sometimes as Christians cross boundaries and do things with our body parts that we're not supposed to do with our body parts. And so the next time you're thinking about doing something with one of your body parts that you shouldn't do, there are all sorts of reasons why you shouldn't do it, but one of the reasons is this body of yours is destined for a future that is worthy of more respect. Also, I think that uh, when we have uh, addictions you will find that the root of addictions is an issue of identity. How do I think about myself truly deep within me? And uh, if we're going to put too much food into our bodies and become obese or put drugs into our bodies or become alcoholics or whatever, ultimately you can't stop that by saying, I will be more disciplined. And I, you know, every diet leads to going back to the same weight before. I've got friends who've gained and lost hundreds of pounds over their lives because until you deal with a root, you'll go back to the same habit. And the root here really has to do with how you view yourself deep within. And I believe if you really understand the resurrection and the Holy Spirit can take that and translate that deep within your feelings about yourself, you can change the need to be addictive in your relationship with your body. And I also think that sometimes people feel that they were put into the wrong gender and have a a, a disjunction between them and their bodies. And I believe this this, uh, uh, message of the risen body of Jesus can also help us come home to our bodies and say, no, this is how I've been created. This is actually going to be the way I'm going to be for thousands of years. Let me have a healed relationship with my body. Let me come home to my body and accept my body. Now, I don't know if this is uh, relevant to all of you here today. But if, as I've been speaking, you're feeling maybe it would be appropriate for me to pray for you that, that the risen presence of Jesus will come and touch your body and bring you home to your body. I would like to pray for you, okay? So, um, would it be uh, easier if if you stand up and just let me pray for you? Uh, And then, Chris, I'm going to hand over to you. Um, But um, just because you've been sitting for a long time, uh, uh, and then stay seated if you want to. But I just want to pray for those who 
maybe the Lord wants to touch right now. Can we, can we just invite Jesus to come? And so, Lord, we, we just want to say, Lord Jesus, we are amazed at you. Who you are, what you've done, and what you represent for us is just amazing. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for your presence that brings the risen Jesus amongst us. And we invite you now, Lord, to come. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. And Lord, where there is pain and brokenness and anguish in people here today, I ask you, come, Holy Spirit, and touch them right now and bring them home to their bodies and heal the things that have broken their relationship with their bodies. And so I bless you in the name of Jesus. If that's you and you've been damaged uh, in, in some way, I bless you. And I say, let the healing of the power of Jesus come to you. Lord, I pray, go deep, deep into those deepest places that touch how we feel about ourselves and give birth, Lord, today to a new respect for the body and a new hope of the resurrection and of total transformation. And Lord, those who need to accept you, I pray that you will come into their lives today. If you've never accepted Jesus, you could, you could just say silently in your, in, your, in your heart these words as I pray for you. Uh, Lord Jesus, I do believe that you are the Son of God. I do believe you died for my sins and rose to give me a completely new future. And I now realize without you, I'm missing the most important thing in life. And so today, I invite you to enter my life. Become the center and focus of who I am. And give birth within me to your risen life. And I pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. And if, if that prayer resonates at all in, in you, I'd like you to contact somebody uh, as the day goes on.